Hello and welcome back to the Y Comics Podcast, where we talk about stories that impact us and sometimes the creators behind those stories. I'm your host, Jesse, and with me today is the writer behind books like Spencer and Locke, Going to the Chapel, The Oz, and Scout's Honor. It's David Pippos. David, thank you so much for coming on tonight. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Um, first things first, kind of I wanted to uh, dive into your history with comics. Where did you find your love and when did you decide this is what I want to do? I want to write comic books. Sure. Uh, well, I, I've loved comics uh, as long as I can remember. I'm a third generation comics reader. My grandfather was a fan. My mother is a fan. Um, and so I, I actually just posted on my Twitter feed today. Um, you know, I, I remember getting uh, five Marvel comics um, as a kid. It's one of my earliest memories. And I probably read those things until the covers came off, uh, especially um, uh, Amazing Spider-Man number 346. Um, uh, it was the issue before Spider-Man and Venom wound up on the island. Um, that really, I feel like I've been chasing that high uh, since I was five years old. Um, you know, Infinity War number two, that also really kind of blew my mind knowing that all these characters, they knew each other. They were in the same world. And I remember uh, distinctly being uh, very enamored with Wolverine. Uh, that was sort of the beginning of a, of a lifelong uh, love of that character. And um, yeah, so I, I, you know, I've been a fan ever since, you know, it kind of comes in, in waves and flows, um, you know, and every time I would discover uh, new books, new series that would kind of make me love the medium even more, books like um, Kingdom Come and Death of Superman and Nightfall, uh, you know, things like Batman Gotham Knights, um, Spawn and Crimson were books that really kind of got me back into the swing of things. Um, Civil War in 52, uh, really kind of uh, uh, got me back in when I was in college. And um, yeah, you know, I, I think to answer your question about why comics and why did I get involved in them professionally, um, you know, it, it took a long time for me to get to that point. Um, I had always thought of comics as sort of the astronaut job. You know, mm -hmm. I, I grew up in Missouri. Um, there was not a whole lot of creative role models for me, so to speak. And, um, but at the same time, I thought, you know, if there was anything I could do in the world, it'd be working in comics. And at the time, I thought maybe that would be working in editorial. Um, so I, I wound up interning at DC Comics um, when I was in college, the summer of 2008. Um, that was during uh, Batman R.I.P. and Final Crisis. Um, it was also during a, a brutal economic recession. Mm -hmm. uh, there, there were no jobs uh, available. But um, I did wind up falling in with um, the crowd at Newsarama. Um, I wound up becoming a reviewer over there. And then uh, eventually the reviews editor where um, I did that as, as sort of my side job. Uh, for about a decade um, while I was working uh, as a crime reporter uh, for, for a newspaper in uh, Pittsfield, Massachusetts. Um, I did that for a while. Um, I, uh, I went back to school for, for publishing and uh, promptly fell into a job in television, uh, working uh, publicity and PR for uh, CBS television in New York. And, um, you know, I, I was doing these jobs and I wasn't finding a whole lot of fulfillment. Yeah, in them, um, you know, comics reviewing was sort of the thing that felt the closest like a calling uh, to me, because I was able to not just read uh, comics to my heart's content, but to really kind of interact with the text and, and start a conversation about the text. Um, and um, after a while, I was even starting to kind of get a little burned out on that. Um, and I realized that if I wanted to continue my, my love affair with comics, I, I was going to have to change that relationship. And that was where I suddenly kind of slowly got the idea of becoming a comics writer. Um, I started by, just by writing short scripts, just for fun, you know, mm -hmm. just, to be, you know, uh, I thought at the time, maybe it would help me be a better reviewer if I learned how story was put together, kind of like a, a mechanic who knows to, how to take apart an engine. 
uh, before learning how to put it back together. And, um, you know, those were kind of fun. And um, then I wrote uh, the first issue of my breakout book, uh, Spencer and Locke. And I really had a lot of fun writing that. And so I thought maybe I'll write a, a treatment for the rest, of, you know, for, for a mini series arc, just to see how that feels. And um, that came together very quickly, uh, faster than anything I've written ever since. Um, and so I thought, well, maybe I'll find an artist just to put together some pages, just to see what that experience was like. And, um, you know, I, I, I hooked up with uh, George Santiago Jr., my Ringo Award nominated uh, uh, co-creator on that book. And, uh, you know, we had a lot of fun with that. And so I said, ah, you know, I'll just shop it around. You know, this will be a fun story to talk about, you know, getting rejected. And um, I sent the email to, uh, to, to Action Lab Entertainment and um, the, the then submissions editor, uh, Dave Dwanch, um, he emailed me back in about 20 minutes uh, asking, how soon do you think you could finish this book? And that's kind of when I felt this like chill run down my spine where I, I dipped my toe in the pool so many times that I then kind of tripped and fell into the deep end. Um, and I was like, oh, I guess I got to make this book. And um, even then, um, you know, I still didn't really give myself permission to be a comics writer at that point. I thought this was a lark, you know, this would be kind of a fun story to tell my kids. Um, but, you know, I, I, I wasn't sure how people were going to respond to the book. Um, you know, we left it all out in the field, but, uh, you know, people could have very well hated that book. And, you know, a book that's uh, what if Calvin and Hobbes grew up in Sin City? Uh, there are going to be people who hate that book just out of sheer high concept. And there are going to be people who love it. And I had no idea what the ratio was going to be. Thankfully, the ratio was uh, really overwhelmingly in our favor. People kind of got what we were doing. They understood, yeah. I think, respected the tightrope that we were walking with that book. And um, when the dust settled, you know, we had been optioned for a film. We had been nominated for five Ringo Awards. And um, it kind of hit me then that like, oh, maybe this could be a career. And um, I've been fortunate enough that I, I've really been doing that ever since. Um, and I've sort of just been kind of building on that foundation that Spencer and Locke built with, uh, with more and more books that sort of get to encompass a variety of different genres and uh, some very uh, exciting new stuff uh, uh, soon to come. Yeah, Spencer and Locke is a really uh, fascinating book for me to read because I, I try to, um, unless I'm already super familiar with the people I'm about to talk to, I try to like, find what I can read it as fast oh. as possible and I've been pretty busy so I'm like okay what can I what can I grab and Spencer yeah. Locke was like the easiest because it's on complexology right now yes. and stuff so like I grabbed that and I read it last night and I'm like and I, and I look at my shelf and I see my complete Calvin and Hobbes collection that like I've grown up with all my life the ones I like are beaten uh to like the pages are like falling apart now and they're stained and stuff and I look I look at the pages I'm reading right now and I'm like these are there's just so eerie the way you like tie the calvin hobbsness to sin city is so eerily accurate it it was upsetting in the best ways <laughs> yes uh that I, I i will take that um yeah you know it's very much it's sort of our our, our pitch black love letter um to, to to bill watterson and frank miller um you know frank uh was actually the first comic creator as a kid that made me realize like, oh, real writers and artists make these things. It's not, mm -hmm. it's not something like made by committee, you know, it's not like a greeting card or anything like that. And, um, and so when I first started thinking about making my own comic, I thought, you know, doing a love letter to, to that creator that made me realize that creators were a thing. And I thought, what's the weirdest thing that I could throw up against old school Frank Miller? And, um, you know, a lot of the initial ideas, it, it, it felt very shock for shock value's sake, which that's not what I'm about. Um, shock can get your foot in the door once, but 
but it, it, it's diminishing returns almost immediately. Yeah. Um, you you want to have like a human heart behind all this. And, you know, as I was thinking of ideas, you know, once I, I thought of uh, Bill Watterson's Calvin and Hobbes, that was kind of where the light bulb went off. Um, I, I had immediately had this image in my mind of this beat up detective grinning in the rain, holding a, a stuffed animal. And I thought to myself, like, what's that guy? What's his life like? What was his childhood like, you know? Um, and how did, you know, why is he so desperate to cling on to this, uh, this figure from his childhood? And um, those were the questions that really formed the structure of Spencer and Locke. You know, it is, it is just as much a psychological study as it is, um, you know, a crime noir detective story. And um, yeah, it is sort of, you know, I, I, I like to say, um, you know, there's no, there's no way that I'm half as talented as Bill Watterson or half as talented as Frank Miller. I just grew up as fans of both of them. Mm-hmm. And uh, I like kind of playing in the margins. I like playing in the overlap, you know, we're, we're standing on, on the shoulders of two pioneering trailblazers for this book. And uh, my only mission for this was to, um, to do justice by both of them, to do right by both of them uh, in a way that um, was showing our affection for the source material rather than trying to, to, to show any disrespect. And um, I think a lot of people saw Spencer and Locke for what it was, um, you know, as a love letter uh, to, to two pioneers and uh, to two people who really shaped um, my reading in the comics industry as a whole. I know uh, Watterson's pretty like off the grid when it comes to like, talking interviews and talking to people and meeting fans and su- such. Sure. Uh, I, I assume you haven't been able to talk to him about it, but have you been able to talk to Frank Miller at all about uh, Spencer and Locke? You know, I've tried. Um, I, uh, there, there was a C2E2, um, I think it was the year we came out, that um, I, I tried to get in the line to, to meet him and I made it all the way to the front and they said, what is your pass? <laughs> um, I did not have one of the special passes to meet Frank. So I, I have yet to meet him, um, but I, I would love to, um, I'd, I'd, I'd love to thank him for, uh, you know, inspiring me for a career. Um, but uh, yeah, I would, I would love to, I'd love to give him a copy of the book, um, but uh, uh, who knows, knock on wood, maybe someday it'll happen. Yeah, conventions are starting to slowly open back up. So who knows what, what could happen yeah. in the future. Um, you talked about earlier too, how like the idea of writing comics it was kind of like going to space, being on NASA and stuff. And I, and I feel the same way. And it's very funny because my mind right now, um, it's NaNoWriMo month and I'm trying to actually uh, work on something this month for sure. it. And my brain's like, okay, if I publish a novel, if I, if I can publish a full length novel, maybe they'll let me write a comic book, <laughs> which well, is like in the long run, the novel's the more impressive thing, but the thing I really want's the comic book. Sure. Well, you know, it, it's one of those things I, I do think that there's a lot of, of um, mystification uh, mm-hmm. behind the process of making comics. And that's something that I think my time at Newsarama was really important in combating. Um, I, I always feel that uh, I, once I learned that writing comics, I, I think I'm sure you grew up feeling the same way that it's like magic, you know, yeah. they always say you have it or you don't, which I think is a, is a load of garbage, uh, to be quite honest. I think making comics, it's, it's a craft. Um, it's, something that can be learned, um, something that can be developed and cultivated. I liken making comics, or at least writing comics, as to building a chair, you know? Everybody knows what a chair looks like, but there's all these different variations into a chair, you know, uh, to, 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 to get a little zen about it. What makes a chair a chair? You know, you got a seat, you've got some sort of leg for the seat to sit on, 
Um, but then you can figure out, does it have a back? Um, how many legs does it have? What's the material? Is it a couch? Is it a futon? Is it a bar or stool? Um, you know, I, I think there's a lot of different ways to make a chair. And the thing is, is that you can practice building your own chairs. And, and at first, they're going to be some pretty crappy chairs. Yeah. Um, you know, you're going to make some chairs that are going to be too small to sit on. You can't sit on them. Maybe there's going to be a couple rusty nails sticking out of them. Um, the thing that I always try to tell people is, uh, you know, the reason I think I've, I had, I've had the success that I've had, I spent a lot of time writing scripts that never saw the light of day. And they were terrible scripts. You know, um, I wrote a short script every day for 90 days. And by the time that I finished those 90 days, I think I, I was getting pretty good at it. Um, you learn by completion. Um, a lot of my scripts are terrible. I think, you know, one of the ones I wrote was like, uh, it, you know, I, I, there was some sort of story about Charlie Sheen, you know, post uh, two and a half men. And obviously is working at CBS. I, I had a lot of two and a half men in my life. And um, so, you know, I wrote something, it was like rock stars from Mars, you know, and, and it was just like a VH1 behind the music of like some invading aliens that decided to become like a rock band instead. Um, it was not good, not ready for prime time. Um, but by finishing it, I got to look on the whole thing and be like, okay, this is what I like. This is what I don't like about it. This is what I could punch up. And then I'd remember that for the next day's script. Um, you learn not to be precious. You learn to just, you learn the structure and you learn the rhythm and you learn how to just get it done. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, I do think that, you know, being a newsarama was super helpful in that regard. Um, you know, I interviewed a lot of creators, uh, people like Greg Pak, uh, Rick Remender, um, Marjorie Liu, uh, Kieran Gillen, uh, Fred Van Lenty, um, Eric Troutman um, are, are the ones that kind of spring to mind immediately. But I felt like I learned a little something from each and every one of them. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, Greg, especially, I tell him every chance I get that I owe him my career because he had said, oh, and I set out to start writing my first scripts were terrible terrible um but you learn by doing um i think it, it was brian k vaughn who said something like every writer has a hundred thousand bad words in them or maybe it's a million bad words and your only goal is to kind of churn through them yeah for sure um i i would add the the the, the caveat that i don't think it's a hundred thousand bad words in a row um i think i think you do have some gold that you can kind of uh, 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 pan out, um, you know, as you're, as you're writing those words. But um, I think writing so much is, it, it's, it is, it's about failure just as much as it is success. And it's, you churn through the failure and you don't have to let anyone see the failure. You just have to get those bad words out so you can then start collecting the good. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. Like there are there are a few times where I have uh, written something that I think is absolutely atrocious and I come back to it a couple years later where I've been now writing for so long that I'm like, wait, wait, the idea here is good. Yeah. But my skill level wasn't there because I didn't know how to form the right sentences or get the motions I wanted to across right. or, or I didn't know how to solve this plot issue that I really needed to solve. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, sometimes there are stories I have, I've had uh, script ideas that have been sitting in the back of my mind for a decade. Um, and, you know, some of them, they're just not quite fully baked yet. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes I have an idea that like kind of springs out as close to fully formed as I can hope for. And, you know, uh, the, the thing about this industry is sometimes choices are made for you. Um, sometimes somebody beats you to the punch. Sometimes uh, you're offered something that you didn't expect. And that kind of shuffles around your personal bibliography a little bit more and uh, opens up uh, new opportunities that you might not have uh, been able to see 
as long as you keep your, your eyes open and your mind open. Yeah, I, I love and hate the thing where you have an idea and you kind of sit on it because you're trying to really form it. And then you see someone else write that idea and they like beat you to the formation faster. And you're like, okay, so the creator brains are all very similar. Some of us just work a little faster than others. Sure. And, you know, some of that, look, some of that is very much, you know, self-selecting and some of mm-hmm. that, sometimes you're going to have to take a beat and just, you know, say, all right, well, you know, I, I can't tell you how many times that like Tom King has done something that I'm like, oh, that would have been such a great idea. You know, when they announced he was doing uh, Strange Adventures with Adam mm-hmm. Strange. I love that character. I was so jealous um, that he, he got to do, you know, sort of a big prestige character driven uh, version of the character because I've wanted to do that for a long time. But, you know, at the same time, you get to then just admire, you know, watching somebody else, you know, uh, uh, it's like watching Jordan play, you know, mm-hmm. you, sometimes it's nice to kind of watch a master at work, and it doesn't have to be you. And um, I think that the big thing that I learned, especially when I was writing, um, you know, a script every single day is, um, it, it's, a, you, you have to learn not to be too precious with your ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, that's, that's almost the easy part. You know, everybody can come up with an idea. Your job as the writer is to execute it, uh, yeah. to, make, to justify the idea and sort of stick the landing in a satisfying way. And, um, you know, ideas come and go. And, um, you know, I, I, I think every writer's got a graveyard of ideas that, you know, never saw fruition, uh, either because somebody beat them to the punch or it wasn't ready for prime time or it was just not a great idea. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, sometimes, like you said, you can, kind of strip some parts uh, from that graveyard a little bit and uh, use it for something else down the line. Uh, I know that you just finished uh, a Kickstarter for the second issue of the Oz, is that correct? Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, for anyone who doesn't know, the Oz is basically like a militarized version of the Wizard of Oz, right? Yeah, I, I've always said, it's, what if the Hurt Locker took place in the Wizard of Oz? Um, it's uh, Dorothy Gale's granddaughter is an Iraq war veteran who finds herself stranded in the war-torn land of Oz. And so um, she's going to have to uh, navigate um, her grandmother's former friends if she hopes to bring peace to the occupied zone, or as the locals call it, uh, the OZ. What about uh, like this kind of story? Because again, you don't you don't with Spencer Log and Ho- Calvin Hobbes with Sin City. Yeah. Why why the the genre twist? What what attracts you to the genre twist so much? Oh, that's that's a great question. I mean, I, I've always been a fan of uh, of, of mashups uh, for a long time. Um, you know, uh, I love music mashups. Uh, you know, you find um, Nine Inch Nails meets Call Me Maybe, and like I'm I'm in. Um, that 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 it, it's it's finding like the the chocolate and the peanut butter, and you know, figuring out what the combinations are, or or the pineapple and the pizza, if uh, if yeah, if, if that's your taste. Um, for me, also, it works uh, in a utilitarian sense as well. If I've got two very strong influences um, that sort of contrast with one another. That kind of helps me get out of the the mud a little bit when I'm writing. If I'm stuck, say for Spencer and Locke, you know, if I was you know doing the crime noir stuff and things are feeling a little bleak or I don't know where to go next, I can switch gears to sort of that subversive Calvin and Hobbes style humor, and vice versa. If I feel like things have been like a little too cheery for for Spencer and Locke, I'm able to kind of hit him in the gut with some you know a hard more twist, and so um, it kind of gives me um, you know some 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 different uh, ways to play off the, the, the same script. And it keeps things interesting for me. Um, the other thing is I, I found that like most of my pitches, um, usually people respond to them with sort of a, a surprised uh, chuckle. 
um, you know, when I when I say cons, um, hey, do you like Calvin and Hobbes? And somebody inevitably will say, I, yeah, I'm a big fan of Calvin and Hobbes. I said, let me introduce you to your new favorite book. It's what if Calvin and Hobbes grew up in Sin City? Um, there, you know, people uh, are are taken aback in a good way uh, for that. And I think having that little bit of surprise, you know, knocking readers off their toes a little bit, that's what gets them intrigued enough to flip through the book. And I think it's so difficult to get readers through the door. Um, you know, there's so many things competing for your attention, so many things competing for your time, so many things competing for your wallet, that you need that little extra hook to, to get readers to, to give you a chance, you know, to, to, to keep your foot in the door. And um, thankfully, you know, I, I've made it a point that I like to work with artists who uh, are way more talented than me. And so when people read the books and they see how good they look and they're interested in the high concept, that often gives us a little bit of a leg up and people will give us a shot. Um, I think people like subversion um, in, 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 their, in their pop culture. I think the trick is doing it in a way that people don't feel gross afterwards. Um, and I think that's something that um, I've been really fortunate with with my work is we try to find kind of the, the silver lining, the, the human beating heart to all this because I'm not doing this for shock value's sake. That's, 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 that's hack work. Um, what I want to do is I want to find like a human core to this storyline and find something for readers to invest in emotionally, um, to, to really engage with uh, in terms of their, their own sense of empathy and to find characters that they're, they're really going to root for. Um, you know, for me, it's, a, uh, you know, it's not just about starting something in a bleak setting. It's the redemptive climb out. And I think that has really been kind of the, the strength of the, 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 the books that I've done. And I think that's what's given us such a, a, a passionate and devoted fan base. Who's been your favorite character to write so far in Oz? Because there's so many fun characters in Wizard of Oz and then being oh, able to yeah. twist it into like a military <laughs> drama must be just really fun. It's been super fun. I mean, boy, it's so tough. Because I mean, Dorothy, of course, is like the voice of the book. And I think she's cut from a similar cloth to Detective Locke. From, uh, from Spencer and Locke. Um, if anything, I think she would kind of consider Locke to be a little bit of a candy ass um, just because like she's seen combat, you know, and, and uh, she, so she's super fun to write. Um, you know, the, the, the tin soldier um, is super fun. Uh, I like him a lot. I've, I've loved the character ever since uh, artist Ruben Rojas sent us our first design for him, which mm -hmm. was uh, actually the cover for our first issue of, of that book. Um, that was the first time that Ruben ever drew the character and I, told Ruben he was hired on the spot. Uh, he's just such a terrific artist and um, I'm so glad um, to be working with him on this book and, and in future projects uh, beyond that. Um, you know, I, I, the other character though, I mean, I will say without spoiling too much, um, Toto, uh, I love writing Toto. Um, I, I, Toto was actually a, a sort of a love letter to um, my former puppy, Holly, um, she passed just as the, uh, when the pandemic broke out and, um, you know, she's a little Karen Terrier and, uh, same breed as Toto. And, um, it was kind of nice, you know, to, to, to have that sort of send off, uh, for, you know, for my, 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 my loving dog, uh, in, in this book. And I feel like he also serves like a very fun, uh, plot device. Like he, he is the exposition of the book and, um, but having like kind of goofy exposition you know having a little a little dog that almost has like a british accent and has spectacles like that's funny to me and that kind of that that helps smooth out some of the beats where we have to lay out the history of oz that could be a little bit dry 
coming out of anybody else's mouth but then you see yeah. Frodo with his little spectacles and uh it's it's it's, it's a very fun character it's it's such a fun concept and i've seen the art too from the kickstarter and stuff it looks just brutal compared yeah. <laughs> compared to what you might think like what in your head like oh this might be it doesn't even look like the the terrifying uh return to oz like it, sure. it just looks even scarier <laughs> you know ruben is is terrific and i i think his, his he, he really is a superstar um uh in the making and um yeah he and whitney kogar are just a, a real dream team um and just seeing ruben's designs i i didn't know this when i reached out to him but um i i didn't i didn't know that his two favorite genres were low fantasy and post-apocalyptic sci-fi and so that this is like the nice sweet spot where we're able to dig into elements of both and uh yeah he just i throw a lot at him in this script and i i throw a lot at all of my artists um you know i i write pretty densely and um there are a lot of concepts that i'm, I'm fairly ambitious with and um, there, you know, a lesser artist would be, um, you know, would have, I think, a tough time keeping up. And Ruben just knocks it out of the park page after page. And uh, I'm so grateful to be working with him. And um, I think his style, it really, you know, it's, it's a little bit of Sean Gordon Murphy, a little bit of Dan Mora. Um, it's cartoony with an edge. Um, you know, I think that is a good tightrope because you really want to find the visual tone of a book like this, not just in terms of the writing. If we had gone hyper-realistic, for example, I think this would have been like a crushingly depressing book. Um, whereas, you know, by having sort of this, this cartoony style uh, with, a, with a harder edge, we're able to maintain the energy. We're able to sort of keep things uh, on a little bit of an even keel um, tonally. And um, we're able to draw in more readers without uh, necessarily making them want to drink. In your other book that just kind of wrapped up and now is in graphic novel form is Scout's Honor. Yeah. What is the the real pitch on that one? Sure. Scout's Honor, it's kind of like um, Mad Max meets the Hunger Games. It's uh, years after a nuclear war, a cult has risen from the ashes and their Bible is an old Boy Scout manual. Uh, we, we follow Kit, who's a young initiate with a secret. Uh, she's had to conceal her identity as a woman in order to serve in this patriarchal cult. And what happens when she finds out her whole way of life was built on a lie? Um, it's, it's, it's a, it's a fun book. Um, you know, it, it deals with, uh, with faith and, and, and organized religion and sort of the sinister secrets that can be hidden underneath the surface. Uh, but it's also got post-apocalyptic Boy Scouts. Um, so it's, it's got, uh, more than its share of action as well. Um, it's a super fun book. Um, I worked, I worked with, uh, artist Luca Casalinguida on that book, um, from James Bond fame. Mm. Um, and, uh, yeah, I couldn't be more thrilled with how that book turned out. Um, people seem to uh, really get what we were going for with the book. And I think it might be one of the more philosophical uh, series that I've, I've had a hand in so far. It, it's fun to see books like that keep getting published at Aftershock because it feels like Aftershock and Vault are kind of fighting to be the new image in the way of like wow. when you're finding something that's kind of not necessarily groundbreaking, but mind-breaking, <laughs> you're going to yeah. go to Aftershock and Vault. Yeah, no, they're, they're, they're both fantastic publishers. Um, I, 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 I uh, I, the, the people at Aftershock are fantastic to work with. And I've talked with uh, other people at Vault for a long time. They're, they're, they're great people. And, um, yeah, you know, I, I, I think for me, you know, Scout's Honor was an interesting book in that, I mean, first off, I think Aftershock recognized I had something in my hands necessarily mm -hmm. before I did. Um, the process with them is a little different than it is with, with many other publishers, you know, uh, several, most publishers, especially at the stage that, that I was at when I pitched that book, 
um, they want you to have, you know, your core concept. They want you to have an art team. They want you to have some pitch pages together and then you kind of send it to them and it's very all or nothing. Thumbs up, thumbs down, you know, you move on if you don't get a hit. Aftershock um, and places like Aftershock and Boom are, are different in that, you know, they, they want to have their, their hands in the book. Um, you know, they want to help develop it. Um, they, they, they pay for the, the, the art and production of the book. And um, so for them, I, I actually had sent Aftershock a number of log lines um, per their request. And I had known, you know, uh, Lee Kramer, the, 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 the president of the company. Um, I knew Mike Martz, the editor-in-chief. I've known him since I was a, a DC intern um, in college. And um, I sent them a whole bunch of log lines and Scouts Honor was the one I had come up with like a week and a half before. <laughs> um, I had done no homework on it. I just said, you know, post-apocalyptic Boy Scout cult, somebody finds out that it's built in a lie. And of course, that's the one that Aftershock went for. Um, and, you know, after the initial excitement, I, I again felt that chill run down my spine. And I said, ah, oh, crap, you know, it's 2019. Um, they're, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an, a book with all dudes that's never going to fly. And I thought about it for a minute and I, I, says, I said, no, like lean into that. That is a weird thing. Um, mm -hmm. And that was sort of the, the, how the wrinkle of Kit being a woman in this patriarchal cult came to be. It was sort of the, the last little ingredient that, that made the whole cake, so to speak. Um, and uh, yeah, it wound up um, being, it was certainly a learning curve. You know, it was the first time that I had worked with editors, uh, for, for example. And um, uh, Christina Harrington, our, our lead editor in the book and, and Mike Martz, um, they really added so much to the mix. Um, they uh, they were hands off when they needed to be, but you know they also kind of added some some made some suggestions and added some elements to the mix that I think was really additive um, to the to this book. In particular, you know, match baking the creative team. Uh, I'd known I'd been familiar with Luca's work for a while. I had actually hit him up about another project a few years prior, and he uh, you know he was busy working on James Bond. Can't fault him for that one. Um, but, you know, when Mike and I were talking about artists and we had batted some ideas back and forth, um, he said, oh, hey, uh, Luca Castellanguida uh, just finished up Lost Soldiers over an image and he's looking for his next book. And uh, I was like, I'm familiar with Luca's work. Let's do this. Um, or Christina bringing in colorist Matt Milla to the mix. Um, you might know him from his work on Daredevil. Uh, and I remember distinctly when Christina said, hey, how do you feel about Matt Milla and colors? I distinctly remember asking oh, are we allowed to do that? Um, just because uh, he's, he's such a, a pro and he's so, he, he's, he's very much in demand. And uh, Matt just made every page sing. Um, he really elevated uh, Luca's line art in a, in a, in a really profound way. Um, and I think that speaks to having good editors uh, involved in the project. And uh, so I'm very excited to work with uh, Mike and Christina again. And um, uh, uh, yeah, we're uh, we're hard at work uh, finding uh, the, the the next cool project uh, to debut at Aftershock. That being said, like I know we we talked briefly before that like you can't talk about uh, all the projects that are in the fire right now. But is there any project coming up that you can talk a little bit about? Hmm. Let's see. Well, you know, we'll have uh, our third and final Kickstarter for the OZ uh, coming out. Uh, I think in the summer of next year. And um, yeah, you know, Dorothy's team will be uh, fully assembled and uh, we're gonna throw them really into the heart of darkness. Um, you know, the, the Scarecrow's uh, plot, it, it, it will be escalating uh, significantly in our second issue. Uh, and I don't wanna spoil that too much, but um, this is sort of, you know, where, 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 where everything really hits the fan um, and Dorothy's gonna have to kind of dig in deep um, to, to, to save the occupied zone. And she's gonna learn some, some uh, 
disturbing secrets about um, about her grandmother's uh, time in Oz. Um, and I think that's going to really kind of uh, twist the put the whole, twist the whole book in its ear. Um, you know, we're hard at work on uh, my sci-fi book, Grand Theft Astro. Um, we're going to be actually kicking off um, uh, new art, uh, I think, starting uh, uh, later this month. Uh, so we'll hopefully have a critical mass of that to show off. Um, we're hoping next year. Um, that book is uh, uh, Fast and the Furious meets Back to the Future in space um, about uh, Hakeem Henriksen, who's the fastest star chaser in the galaxy. Um, he accidentally rips open a wormhole during a race in space and uh, falls seven years into a future that has long since left him behind. Um, and so he'll have to go uh, on a faster than light heist with his formerly younger brother uh, if he hopes to return to his home era. So I'm very excited about that book that's been written for a long time. And we've just been kind of getting our ducks in a row as far as the art is, uh, the art production is concerned. Um, but we've got some very cool stuff to, to share on that, uh, uh, hopefully sooner rather than later. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think what else is in the works that I can talk about. Um, you know, my next series, I can't really say too much about. I think they're going to be announcing it uh, either later this month or maybe sometime in December. Um, mm -hmm. That should be coming out uh, Q1 of next year. But that's a really big swing, uh, ambitious project for me. Um, I get to kind of mash up fantasy and sci-fi in a really cool way. Um, I, I was so thrilled uh, when my, my editor went for this project. And, um, uh, but I know that if I go too, uh, too much deeper into that, uh, the, the, the sniper dot will, will come for me. Um, yeah, um, uh, I'm working on a, a story in, uh, in an anthology that'll be Kickstarted next year. Um, Cthulhu is hard to spell, uh, volume three, uh, which uh, Russell Nahalti is, is spearheaded. Um, I've got a really fun mashup story with uh, artist Mon House in that, that uh, we just turned in, just got approved. Um, it Mon has done variant covers for all of my series. He was just nominated uh, for a Ringo Award for his cover art uh, for the OZ, for the first issue of that. And um, we've been wanting to work on interiors together for a long time. And uh, uh, we were finally able to, to, to check that box off. Um, he just did some terrific stuff that I'll be able to talk more about that high concept soon. Um, and then, yeah, you know, a few other things in, in, in the docket. Um, I, I believe I'll be starting work on a new horror project uh, relatively soon. Um, you know, that one, that's a project that kind of just fell in my lap recently. Um, and then a YA, uh, all ages, uh, action-packed graphic novel that we're uh, hard at work on the art on right now. Um, my artist is almost done with our first issue. Um, it is terrific looking. Um, but yeah, it's a lot of stuff in the hopper that I can't really share yet. Yeah. But, sure. uh, but uh, yeah, in the next, um, I'd say month or two, uh, there'll be more announcements and um, it, it'll be some really cool stuff that I, I'm, I'm dying to share with people. And I think uh, when people kind of see the concepts and see the stories, they're going to be uh, just as excited as I am. I, I do think my favorite announcement is kind of the unannouncement where like you can't specifically say, but you can tease. Those are, those are some of the best ones. And especially when I list the other interviews and stuff, I'm like, Ooh, I, I can't wait to figure out what that is. And then when the thing gets announced, I'm like, well, it's not, that's not the one I was talking about. You're like, Oh, there's more. You know, uh, in my newsletter uh, pep talks, I, I send that out once every three weeks just to let my family know I'm still alive. And um, I, I, I do sort of the old Warren Ellis approach um, where I use pseudonyms for all of my projects. So, um, you know, project sledgehammer is kind of my, my, my next big project. I, I call it that because uh, it's a big swing and it hits hard. Um, and uh, when you see 
the the book itself you'll you'll understand why why i chose that title um you know i have a one of the shorts that i have coming out next year uh project stardust um if you're a fan of my work on spencer and Locke, you're gonna be really excited by this one i can tell you the artist on that one is a, a beast um and somebody who uh, I'm so thrilled I get to work with. Um, I did not, it was, it was, it was a reach uh, for me to ask them um, if they wanted to do this uh, together. And they, uh, the fact that they accepted, I am so thrilled. Um, you know, but yeah, I, 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 I tend to do that because I want to talk about these projects so badly. Yeah. Uh, sometimes I can only kind of talk about the outlines of it a little bit. Um, but uh, yeah, suffice to say, um, you know, my sort of genre mashup uh, 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 stuff, I'm not getting rid of that anytime soon. And uh, a lot of the projects I have coming down the pike, it it's this meets this, but in a really fun way. Is there any uh, thought on the horizon for you working at like a Marvel or DC property just because uh, I know there's always like that thing where like maybe one day I'll work on something like that when you grow up sure. reading it so much. But there's also the thing is like, I get to make my own things though. So well, um, I, like it's I, in the back of your head further. I, you know, I, I, I'd love to be omnivorous uh, with this sort of thing. Um, you know, I grew up reading these characters. I love Marvel and DC. Um, you know, I think a strong Marvel and DC is a, is a strong comic book industry or a strong direct market at, at, at minimum. Um, you know, for me at this stage of my career, I'm really looking forward to kind of branching out and expanding as much as, as, as I can. Um, you know, I've been really fortunate that, um, you know, we just won a Ringo Award uh, for the OZ um, just a couple weeks ago. And um, that certainly has opened up some doors already. Um, you know, I, I, uh, I would love to, to, to write for the big two. Um, I think they have some really uh, amazing and cool characters. And um, one, my favorite characters are the ones who, you know, they either have a very distinct personality or they have a very distinct metaphor. Um, and sometimes if you can kind of figure out where the overlap is with that, that's sort of the, the, the best part of all. Um, there are a lot of characters I'd love to write. You know, I'd love to write Shazam uh, over at DC. I know that's, uh, that seems a little more all ages than my, my current output, but I could write Billy Batson for a hundred issues and never get tired. Yeah. Uh, you know, he's, he, he's, he's such a fun character. And, and um, you know, whenever I, my, my dirty secret is whenever I get in a jam writing, you know, oftentimes I'll do a little bit of fan fiction and, and Billy Batson is usually top of the list. Um, you know, Dr. Strange over at Marvel, um, love that character. And um, I think Jed McKay is doing terrific work with the death of Dr. Strange. Yeah. Um, first two issues are really good so far. Um, but, you know, I'm, I, I, I would love to take a crack at, at, at Steven at some point. Um, you know, I, I mean, and then there's, of course, the, the, the various teams, you know, I'd love to write an Avengers book someday. Um, I'd love to write the X-Men. I'd love to write the Justice League. Um, you know, books like Suicide Squad or Thunderbolts, I think would be really fun and up my alley. Um, you know, Moon Knight, um, you know, all of them would be uh, really fun and, and really cool. And that's not even then kind of tapping into sort of the, 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 the A-list of A-listers, you know, I mean, I love Batman. I love Spider-Man. Um, I don't know if I'm ready at this stage in my career to write either of them, um, but uh, you know, never say never. Um, but yeah, I, at the same time, I, I love having the freedom to do my own thing. And um, I think you know, my ideal uh, for my future is to kind of be able to do a little bit of both. Um, I think comics, it's very much a pendulum. Um, you know, you go from creator-owned to licensed books. You go from the direct market to Kickstarter. Mm -hmm. And I think, uh, especially given where we're at. In, 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 in history right now and times are very uncertain. I think it's incumbent upon every creator 
to not just do this for their own self-preservation uh, to, to bridge these different readerships, but I do think that there's a real diaspora of comics fans that are split up amongst the direct market, amongst Amazon, amongst conventions, amongst Webtoon, amongst Kickstarter, amongst the book market like Scholastic or Random House Graphics. And I think we need to do our part to kind of introduce ourselves to these different constituencies and invite them to the same table. Um, I think that is sort of, that's the way that we kind of build up the, the, the comics industry for the long haul. Um, I don't, I, I challenge the notion that the comics industry is dying. I challenge the notion that there's no interest in reading comics. Is there, you know, is, is, is the interest in superhero fare uh, changing? Of course it is. You know, we're in a we're in a pop culture landscape now where people are getting introduced to these characters through the MCU or through uh, through through film. It's the same way I was introduced to the X Men with X Men the animated series as a kid. Um, I think you know for the big two, it's up to to, to creators to capitalize upon that um, and to make stories that are uh, accessible uh, for 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 new readers. But I also think that creator owned people, you know, were able to sort of kick open the doors in another direction and find new and interesting concepts for people who are not necessarily superhero fans. And so that's the reason I've written, I keep jumping from genre to genre in the way that I have is, all right, you like crime? We've got Spencer and Locke. All right, is that too dark for you? All right, well, if you like things with a lighter touch, we've got going to the chapel. Uh, if you like crime with a sci-fi twist, we've got Grand Theft Astro. If you like fantasy, we've got the OZ. Um, you know, if you like post-apocalyptic, we've got Scout's Honor. I want to be Baskin Robbins, you know, I want 31 flavors and something for everybody. And um, that's sort of my ongoing career ambitions and um, something that I, I won't rest until I've fully accomplished. I, uh, this is a question I didn't think about at all. But when you started talking about it, I started eating up my head. It's like, which version of Billy do you prefer? Do you prefer the not do no wrong, but is very pure at heart, Billy? or the kind of roughed edge Billy that is being smoothed out by the heroes around him? I, 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 I do like OG Billy. Um, you know, I always think of him a lot as um, like Aang from Avatar mm -hmm. and Last Airbender, is that, you know, he, he, he is a kid, um, but he's a good kid, but he's one who has a lot of learning to do. And I think that is what makes him so relatable is that, you know, you see not just his hero's journey, mastering the powers of Shazam, but also just kind of learning the lessons that we all learned growing up. You know, what's, what's Billy's first kiss like? What's him learning how to drive? What's him, you know, having to juggle homework um, while also fighting Dr. Savannah? Mm. Uh, you, know, uh, you know, what happens when he's got a crush in his, on his, uh, on, uh, you know, somebody in his class and Superman sets him up on a blind date with Zatanna? You know, I mean, there's a lot of, I think, very human stories that can be told with Billy. And, um, I think his journey into becoming an adult, I think is, is, is really powerful stuff that I don't think has ever been really addressed. Um, and, and, and that's why I think having him as a rougher on the edges kid, um, I understand the impulse to do that, thinking that, oh, you know, he's having a good kid is unrealistic. But I think, you know, it's similar to, uh, you know, people kind of poo-pooing Superman, saying, oh, he's too much of a Boy Scout, he's too much of a Boy Scout. He's a fundamentally decent person and you can still give him challenges. But mm -hmm. I think that makes him an even more interesting character is that he can be challenged, um, but he'll still do the right thing, uh, even when it's difficult to choose to do so. 
And um, that's the stuff that I really like about Billy as well. Um, but for him, it's just, it, it, it's, the, it's that relatability um, because I think we all have these, this is the thing that I always try to get to in my own writing is what's the universal moment here? You know, for Spencer and Locke and for the OZ, it's that we all have stuff in our past that we don't like to think about. Um, that, you know, we worry deep inside, is this gonna be the thing that defines us? Or is this something that we can maybe transcend? And if not outgrow, it's something we can learn to live with. Um, and I think for Billy, it's just, it's growing up. And yeah. I think all, you know, we all have certain universal experiences for growing up and um, watching Billy kind of deal with that, but in sort of a supersized Paul Bunyan fashion, um, that's something that really appeals to me as a storyteller. Yeah, I, I, I think I, I agree with that output of like Superman and Shazam, like the way to write them is to write the kind of the world around them has issues and them dealing with that at the same yeah. time. Yeah. Um, uh, my last, I have two last questions for you before sure. we wrap up. Uh, one is uh, if, if they told you like tomorrow that you have to write a hard R peanut story, what, how, how would you pitch that? Well, um, I, I, I'll tell you, cause we're doing it for Spencer and lock volume three. Um, uh, yeah. We're doing a, a Garfield themed serial killer is picking off the peanuts gang. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm actually chiseling away at that very script right now. Um, it, it's taken a little bit of time. Um, you know, there's a lot of homework that goes into Spencer and Locke. Um, I reread every single Bill Watterson strip before I, I, I dive into another volume. And I'm going to read as much of Charles Schultz and uh, Jim Davis as I can. And uh, the difference being is that I wrote Spencer and Locke volume one and two, uh, almost back to back. Uh, I've written uh, seven or eight other books since volume two. So, I, I, and as you'll see, when you, when you see announcements for uh, Project Sledgehammer, you'll know that's like, that was sort of one of those projects that like, it's an offer you can't refuse uh, kind of projects. So um, that, there's a reason why Spencer and Lock 3 is moving a little slowly. It's entirely my fault. Um, but yes, I, I do want to, I, I, it's like climbing Everest three times um, doing that series. And so that's why there's so much homework. Um, but, you know, I love, honestly, the, the original Charles Schultz uh, Peanuts stuff. I, I like that, honestly, even more than the modern stuff because there's just that subversiveness to it. Um, and there's sort of that, that kind of, that surprising edge that you wouldn't expect for something that's become as commodified as Peanuts. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, now they're, you know, they're, they're repping insurance companies, but like, you know, uh, you know the, the, the humor of those original scripts you see a direct through line from that to Bill Watterson's Calvin and Hobbes. Um, and to be honest, I also see that as sort of the, the common thread with Bill Watterson and Frank Miller is that they have that same subversive sense of humor. Um, and that's something that, I, that has always appealed to me and something that um, when we do uh, finish Spencer and Lock 3, which will sort of be the, 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 the wrap up of our whole series, uh, we, we, we hope to, to stick the landing in a way that does justice to everybody. Yeah, I, 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 now that you put the the humor of of both and like the way they kind of take uh, take the seriousness out of both genres, that, that makes a lot more sense why they mesh, mesh so well together. Yeah, exactly. Um, my last question for you is: Do you ever worry as a writer um, and as a creative in general that the next project is not going to live up to the previous project, especially with like with you? You've kind of knocked it out of the park right away, and keep knocking it out of the park. So it, it's really it's really interesting to hear you talk about how like the first book is Spencer and Locke and and now Oz is run the Ringo and all these other books are 
not not just winning awards or uh like being read but like they're getting critical attention like by writers and stuff i see them posted all the time in articles yeah um no i mean you know it's a it's a, it's a great question i mean I, I worry all the time but um you know about I, I think for me the deal that i made for myself was on a book-to-book basis um trying to worry about whether or not the next thing is going to be bigger in scale than the thing before it i think you, that you'll drive yourself crazy um you know you'll put pressure on yourself that is not good or healthy. Um, I mean, it's something that I've grappled with a little with uh, Spencer in Lock Volume 3. Um, and it's part of the reason why it's been a little slower than, than most in, in, in chiseling that book out is because you're suddenly like, oh, okay, we got the, you know, now we have to really stick the landing again on a book that was, you know, a challenge to stick the landing on twice before. But I think um, in general, for me, it's always about, have I developed another set of muscle groups? for each book. Uh, if I've stretched myself and tried something different, then, then I, I, I feel like I can go to sleep at night. Um, I think a good example is, um, you know, when I went from Spencer and Locke to um, going to the chapel, which is, a, you know, it's Die Hard meets Wedding Crashers. Uh, it's about a gang of bank robbers that um, uh, robs a, a rich family's wedding and uh, a bride becoming the ringleader of her own hostage situation to escape walking down the aisle. And, um, you know, Spencer and Locke is the kind of book that like that that's for the direct market you know people people I think vibed on that book going to the chapel you know I mean it's a crime comedy but it's also a rom-com I mean mm -hmm. that is direct market counter-programming and I I don't think I'm, I'm I'm you know fooling anybody when of course the sales for going to the chapel are not going to be as big as Spencer and Locke because we are sort of we're zigging where everybody expects us to zag and um, you know for me it's always you know did I leave it all out in the field for the book? Did I deliver the best book that I possibly could with the skills that I had? Um, and, you know, for me, you know, going to the chapel was sort of, it was a response to Spencer and Locke. Uh, just the way that Spencer and Locke too was a response to the first volume. Um, Spencer and Locke had a pretty tight, intimate cast. So I wanted to do a big ensemble piece. I think we had 15 or 16 speaking roles uh, in, in that book. Um, Spencer and Locke, you know, kind of flitted from location to location. So going to the chapel was primarily set in one place. Um, going to the chapel or, you know, Spencer and Locke was kind of a dark, sometimes bleak book. And, you know, going to the chapel is kind of the, the, the lightest, brightest book that I've ever written. Um, you know, it's still subversive in that Tarantino way, but like, it's, it, it, it's not a book that, you know, is, is gonna, is gonna upset anybody in any way. Um, and, you know, for me, I felt like, oh, you know, I'm trying something new. And I think people saw going to the chapel and I think they, it really changed their perspective on me, I think in a positive way. Um, you know, there was a lot of, of critical positive reception for Spencer and Locke and Spencer and Locke too. But I think they're all wondering, well, is he a one trick pony? And seeing that, oh no, like I can, I can have a lighter touch. Um, I can tackle a genre that most people in the comics industry would never tackle. Uh, many publishers would not tackle rom-coms. I would know having pitched that book. Um, you know, it, it, that made me feel really good. And beyond that, you know, you take your wins where you can. Um, you know, for me, it's uh, I take as many swings as I can because the harder you work, the luckier you get. Um, you know, I was very aggressive in promoting going to the chapel to retailers. And as a result, um, we got very lucky that uh, one of my local retailers, Golden Apple Comics, shout out to them, um, you know, they slipped a copy of going to the chapel in Patton Oswalt's uh, oh, amazing. Uh, list. And he read the book in his car and uh, loved it. And he started tweeting about it. 
And so we got a really wonderful pull quote from Patton on, on, on the trade paperback. Um, very sweet guy. Um, he did not have to promote the book uh, the way that he did. And he was tweeting about us every single issue. Very nice guy. Um, and that's like a huge win, you know? Um, uh, and I, I think, you know, my, my mother was a college professor and I think I, I get that from her is that, you know, learning is its own reward and learning new skills, uh, especially. And I think for me, if I can sort of pick up new skills, um, you know, in every single book, you know, the, 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 the scale of the book or the sales numbers of the book, that doesn't matter as much to me. Uh, because at the end of the day, like, you know, I'm going to be putting out hopefully a whole bunch of different books and a whole bunch of different genres. And some of them are going to be a little stickier than others. Um, and some of them are going to be a little bit more high profile than others. But at the end of the day, I see my career as when I'm at a con, you know, I have these number of books in front of me. Nobody knows what order they came out in. Um, they just know that they exist. And um, for me, that's kind of uh, its own reward is just having more books. Um, and so, uh, you know, as long as I keep trying and keep growing and, and keep um, evolving as a storyteller, um, that's, that's good enough for me. Yeah, that, that I think is, that's the realistic end goal that I have to keep in my mind too. It's like, as long as like I get the right and I get paid to write, <laughs> like, that's all I need. That's all I really yeah. need. I mean, you know, just, I, I, I think if I, if I keep trying new things, and that's the reason I keep bumping from genre to genre to genre, um, is I, I get restless, you know? Um, every book that I write, I, I have a, a bucket list, and I had one with Spencer and Locke, and I checked off as much of it as I could, thinking I might not get to write another comic. And I found out, you know, not only did I get to write more comics, but I had a longer bucket list afterwards. Um, you find different genres that you might be interested in. You see other people's storytelling tricks and you're like, that's cool. I would love to do something like that. Um, you know, for example, if you're a big fan of uh, Terminator or you're a big fan of Face Off, um, you say, yeah, I'd love to do something in one of those veins. You know, um, you know, maybe you have something where you, you, somebody body swaps with a Terminator. I don't know. But, I, but you know, you, know you, you see what I'm saying is that like, I think, if you're a, a creator who's kind of constantly keeping their eyes open and constantly consuming new media and constantly kind of seeing what everybody else is doing, you find interesting angles that you want to pursue and you wind up getting sort of a, a concept list that, you know, as long as, as long as you're armed. And, um, you know, I, I think as you keep going and as you keep evolving as a storyteller, um, that is, you know, that's a, a more sustainable reward than saying, oh man, every book's got to be bigger because real talk, I mean, otherwise you look at, you know, somebody who I see as a big influence, Dan Slott, you know, I mean, yeah. you can only have one writer on Amazing Spider-Man, you know, and if that winds up being just the brass ring, then, you know, what happens when you hit that? What do you do with the rest of your life? Um, and I think, you know, I, I see Dan as, 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 as a big example that like, he's found other projects that, that give him meaning besides writing Spider-Man, who I know is his all-time favorite character in fiction. And, um, you know, he's somebody I, I see as a big inspiration. You know, he's a 30-year man in this business, and that's, that's what I want to be. And um, I, I think um, just trying to, to manage my expectations of both a book's success and, and the expectations of myself is, is really the most important way to, to, to keep going uh, for, that, for that period of time. David, thank you so much for coming on and talking to me. Uh, where can people find you on social media so they can find out when these books are starting to come out and sure. uh, where to buy the other ones? 
Yeah, you can follow me on uh, Twitter and Instagram at PeposD. It's my last name and first initial or David Pepos Comics on Facebook. You can subscribe to my newsletter, Pep Talks at bit.ly slash pep news. Uh, or you can visit my website at davidpepos.com uh, where we've got a web store uh, with all of my books. And you can find this show on Twitter at YComicsPod. You can email me at YComicsPodcast at gmail.com. If you have a question for a guest, want to be a guest on the show yourself, or have a story about how comics impacted you that you want read on the episode, you can reach me on all those places. If you like the show, tell a friend and leave a review where you listen. Uh, the logo is done by Andy Manley, who you can see working on The Simpsons. And the banner is by my friend Steven. The theme is Join the Restaurant by David Zetsi. And remember, everybody, even Captain America punched Nazis and... Got a shot that no one knew was tested, but these shots are tested. Please get your shots.